This is Rory Sutherland, author of Alchemy, the dark art and curious science of creating magic in brands, business, and life. And you are listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. Welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast, helping you keep up with the smartest thinking in the quickly changing field of modern marketing. And now, here's your host, Douglas Burdett. Hello, thanks for joining me on the Marketing Book Podcast, where each week I publish an interview with the author of a new marketing or sales book, and which was named by Forbes as one of 11 smart podcasts that will keep you in the know, and named by LinkedIn as one of 10 podcasts that will make you a better marketer. My goal for this podcast is to help us both keep up with the latest ideas in the quickly changing fields of modern marketing and sales. Don't worry about taking notes. You can find links to everything linkable in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And since you're a listener to the Marketing Book Podcast, if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or some other helpful resource that I know of for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction and save you some time. This show is a labor of love that I do in my spare time. My day job is running a marketing agency where we work with manufacturers and industrial companies to help them grow by helping them earn the attention and trust of their prospective customers. For more, check out our guide to lead generation for manufacturers on our website, salesartillery.com, or Google lead generation for manufacturers, and you'll find the guide atop the organic results. This episode is sponsored by David Merriman Scott's phenomenal New Marketing Mastery course that he developed with Tony Robbins. New Marketing Mastery will teach you step-by-step how to get your marketing in alignment with the way your customers want to buy. David spent three years putting together over 50 videos, dozens of infographics and worksheets, and a 50-page workbook to get your marketing to generate a lot more sales. And even nicer, Marketing Book Podcast listeners will get $500 off by entering promo code marketing book. To sign up, go to newmarketingmastery.com, but make sure to enter promo code marketing book for that $500 off. You can find a short video about the course and a link to it in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now, on with the show. Today, we welcome Rory Sutherland to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his newest book, Alchemy, The Dark Art and Curious Science of Creating Magic in Brands, Business, and Life, published by HarperCollins. Rory Sutherland is the vice chairman of Ogilvy, where he has worked since 1988 and where he was notoriously called the worst graduate trainee that Ogilvy and Mather ever had. The attractively vague title of vice chairman at Ogilvy has allowed Rory to form a behavioral science practice within the agency whose job is to uncover the hidden business and social possibilities which emerge when you apply creative minds to the latest thinking in psychology and behavioral science. Rory is also a columnist for The Spectator, and his TED Talks have been viewed more than 7 million times. And interesting facts he lives in a four-bedroom flat on the second floor of a building constructed in 1784, which was the house built for the personal doctor of King George III. He once spent 24 hours in a Qatari jail, and he is married to an Anglican priest. Rory, congratulations on Alchemy, and welcome to the Marketing Book Podcast. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to be on. So your book was highly recommended by a recent guest, uh, Nir Eyal, who is the author of Hooked and uh, Indistractable, and he uh, couldn't uh, say good enough things about it. 
No, he Nier's a fantastic writer, by the way, and, and indistractable is an incredibly important concept as well. Fun enough, I should have read it before I wrote my book because I probably would have written my book in about half the time. <laughs> um, what I discovered is that the only way to write a book really is to take large swathes of time, uninterrupted time, two, three, four days at a time. Trying to write a book in snatches of three, four, and five hours for someone with my own particular temperament mm, is yes. more or less impossible. I'll get trapped down a Wikipedia rabbit hole for three hours and get nowhere at all. It was only when I took out significant chunks of time and contiguous free time uh, that I, I managed to get the writing done. Oh. But it's a very, very uneven process. And, and, and um, I will actually reread Indistractable before I embark on that difficult second album. <laughs> All right. Well, it's, uh, I can't imagine when it's writing a book. I have such admiration for people that are able to do it. And I, it brings to mind the quote often attributed to Hemingway about uh, there's, there's nothing difficult about writing. You just sit down at a typewriter and bleed. Yeah, that's pretty much it. I mean, it's, um, if, I mean, it, it's a not not banal fact that it's physically extremely irritating. Um, you know, you're at risk of mild RSI. Uh, I did uh, resort to dictating uh, for a chunk of time. Uh, so sections of the book, I, I used Google Dictation on a Chromebook uh, simply because uh, you just get so sick of typing. And also speaking is a lot faster than typing. It's very easy to forget that. But... Um, no, the the process of it, my, it, I, it was in many ways, I think, salvaged by my wife, who proposed the idea of breaking it up into many, many shorter sections, rather than the standard book approach of having large, overarching thematic chapters. Oh, interesting, interesting. Well, and I think in the book you said you didn't write any of this in your office. It was all uh, out of the office, so that makes perfect sense. So. Yeah, actually, actually, there's an interesting one on that. If anybody is thinking of writing a book, Robert Cialdini said something very interesting, which is that when he tried writing popular books about behavioral science in his office uh, at the University of Arizona, he felt himself lapsing all the time into kind of academic jargon. And he said it was only by going home and sitting in his home that he could comfortably just write for a mainstream audience. And I think there's a bit of truth about that, that where you are affects how you write. That's very interesting. And he is a PhD, and there have been some other PhDs on the, on, uh, whose books I've, have been on the show. And his book, a, a very small number written by PhDs, it's like they were writing for other PhDs. <laughs> Most of them, that's not the case, and that certainly wasn't the case with his book Influence or Persuasion. But that helps to shed some light on uh, what helped him not to write for his, his academic peers. I think I think Persuasion is a wonderful book, by the way. Yes. I mean, that really is a super book. Uh, um, you know, more people have probably read Influence, um, but Persuasion is equally important and uh, very, very makes something absolutely vital points. I think. Yes, it came to mind when uh, reading your book, and also you mentioned uh, Dr. Cialdini several times. Now, you started at Ogilvy the same year I started at J. Walter Thompson in uh, New York after having read. Uh, one of two books that have had the biggest impact on my work uh, and career, which was Ogilvy on Advertising. I, I got out of the Army, I read Ogilvy on Advertising, and I said, holy smokes, that's what I, I want to do, and off I went and into that line of work. And I was just wondering, did you ever get to meet David Ogilvy? Once. 
I was also influenced, I think, indirectly in that my first boss at the direct marketing wing of Ogilvy in London was a man called Drayton Bird, who knew David very well. And Drayton was really to direct marketing what David, in, certainly in the UK, what David was to advertising. And I met David once when he came over, and I can date it more or less exactly because it was several weeks after the Eurostar connection had opened between France and England, uh, the, the tunnel under the channel. So, uh, and the reason that was significant is David absolutely hated flying. Oh. And so um, he lived in France for much of the time, but was reluctant to come to the UK until the uh, the train connection had opened up. And he came over and spoke at Ogilvy London, and it was fantastic. He must have been then, I suppose, getting on for, uh, I suppose, he was born in 1911, so I suppose this would have been the mid-90s. He would have been in his 80s already, and it was an incredibly lucid presentation of his work and times. And um, I, I, I've since obviously been to the Chateau, uh, which is still uh, owned and inhabited by his widow and used for Ogilvy meetings quite a lot. Mm. And so I, you also get to know him through the brickwork, as it were, perhaps, because it still carries his imprint very, very strongly. Uh, but um, a few things about David. I mean, just as important, I think, as a business thinker, as an advertising man, and an extraordinary prose writer. Hmm in that he has that, I think, there are a few other people like that. Whenever you read anything written by David, not once in hundreds and hundreds, thousands of words, do you ever have to track back to make sense of, sense of a sentence, for example. There's never any ambiguity. It's absolutely clear. But with that rather nice sort of Conan Doyle touch, where once every three or 400 words, you throw in a slightly unusual phrase or word just to remind the reader that there's someone of intelligence and education <laughs> behind the communication. But the rest of it is kept wonderfully simple. Oh, interesting. Yes. Well, I've read, I think I read all his books and I started with that one and really uh, changed things for me. And it's, I later got a copy of Ogilvy on Advertising in the Digital Age by Miles Young, who I'm, uh, I suppose you're more familiar with. You must with. interview him. Yeah. I know him very well. I was going to interview him, but he's now gone off to be uh, the warden at uh, New College at Oxford. Oxford. That's right. Right. Which I guess is the, is that the arch rival of uh, where you went to school and Yeah, Cambridge? pretty much. Um, uh, yes, that would be the uh, standard rivalry. But um, he, he was, of course, a, a, a former undergraduate there. So he's a, he's returned. Yes. Um, and I can imagine that uh, it's an extraordinary job for him. He must absolutely love it because he was always, you know, extraordinarily academically active at the same time as being uh, very senior in business. I mean, a really remarkable combination of intelligences there. Mm. Well, if you run into him, uh, please encourage him to uh, to come do this. By oh, he'd, he'd love that. His new he'd job is, is must be uh, very, very busy. We had it scheduled and then there were some complications. So your book is a, is a long book, uh, longer than a lot of business books, uh, that I, which I read slowly and then I didn't want to end. <laughs> So I spent quite a bit of time with you. That's unusual because most books, I'm, I'm very pleased to hear that because most books are, to be honest, too long. It's very rare that you read a book and you go, I wish it had been a bit longer. Um, and I think that's partly a problem with um, booksellers, that it's very difficult to charge eighteen ninety nine for something that's only 150 pages long, mm. for instance, or for something that's 40,000 words rather than 110, which is a pity because I think an awful lot of books could, in fairness, make their point in quite a lot less length. And that becomes actually a more interesting debate when audiobooks become more 
popular mm. um, because, uh, you know, um, audiobooks tend to be, what, about 10, 11 hours long. And um, the, the debate about what length a book should be is always interesting. But I'm very, very pleased it maintained momentum to the end. It's certainly longer than I intended. I intended it to make it quite a bit shorter, but ended up essentially, I suppose, um, always thinking of one more thing to put in. I hope also that it, whereas it is emphatically and very much a marketing book, it's not only about marketing and nor is it only for a marketing audience. I was always reminded of Jeremy Bulmore, who's a wonderful kind of advertising doyen here in the UK. He always said the best books about advertising aren't about advertising. And I think there's an element where the the fascinating thing about working in advertising itself is you can draw from learnings in a whole variety of different fields. To use David Ogilvy's phrase, you can be an extensive browser in a variety of fields, and everything you learn makes you better at your job. Mm. Now, I don't think that's true if you're an actuary or an accountant. You know, I don't think if you're an actuary sitting in a cafe and watching people come in and out or reading widely on evolutionary biology is necessarily going to make you any better as an actuary but the joy of advertising is it's a wonderful excuse to essentially to be curious because pretty much anything you do can be of value and so uh, i suppose i have three or four overlapping interests i mean evolutionary psychology psychology in general and behavioral economics uh, economics itself and marketing yes um and what I, what I wasn't doing anything so bold as to attempt a complete fusion of the four into some fantastic overarching new science. But nonetheless, I think drawing on all of them and indeed drawing on wider reading in both science and technology, I'd, I'd add those to the list very much, can create a kind of fusion of knowledge which is more valuable than knowledge that's siloed in any particular specialized field. Well, I think you've succeeded at that. It certainly, uh, as I say, it took me uh, places where I don't normally get to read about these things, and it was very interesting. And reading this book reminded me somewhat of uh, the adventure of reading a Malcolm Gladwell book, except that you have a sense of humor. I think Gladwell's quite funny, isn't he? I've always found him fairly amusing. But um, I I put in the jokes and the footnotes – I also enjoyed enormously reading the audiobook myself. Oh, really? Um, and very interestingly, I thought, well, I might as well read the, you know, read the audiobook, not really realizing at the time, and it was only when I spoke to the producer of the recording, where she said that if you get an actor or any third party in to read an audiobook, the entire thing is judged only on two things, really, which is clarity and fidelity to the original text. And so most audiobooks, when you're reading an audiobook for an author who's not in the room, you can't even change do not to don't. Now, you know, whereas David Ogilvy generally advised us to write as we speak, patently there are sentences we write which you recast slightly if you were to use them in conversation. And so I particularly enjoyed doing the audiobook because there were whole sections of the book where a, you could get the tonality right. I think they're little bits of mischief, like the, the the footnotes and so forth. But also just that freedom to recast sentences. And occasionally, the audiobook contains a few extra discursions, I think, where I go off and add a couple of, uh, you know, kind of tangential uh, notes and remarks. 
perhaps explaining why you were in a Qatari prison for 24 yeah, hours. I, I, I think you know, that, that might, I might have left that mysterious. It was, in fact, oh. vaping, vaping on an aircraft is the reason, if you, <laughs> oh, just really? in case anybody wants to avoid it. Okay. Um, but um, the, you know, the interesting thing there is, is that uh, if you are buying audio books, um, uh, I, I would generally recommend audio books read by the author over those read by someone else. However fine the actor is, is they're operating under certain constraints. I see. Yes, interesting. I guess uh, there's also the issue of the fiction versus nonfiction. It seems like the original author uh, certainly makes more sense to me uh, for a nonfiction book. Um, well, let me just read one excerpt, and then uh, we'll get into just a few of the topics. And I guess I should apologize to you and the listener, because there's so much here that we we just won't be able to get to. But you write... There is a simple premise to this book, that while the modern world often turns its back on this kind of illogic, it is at times uniquely powerful. Alongside the inarguably valuable products of science and logic, there are also hundreds of seemingly irrational solutions to human problems just waiting to be discovered. If only we dare abandon standard-issue naive logic in the search for answers. Unfortunately, because reductionist logic has proved so reliable in the physical sciences, we now believe it must be applicable everywhere, even in the much messier field of human affairs. The models that dominate all human decision-making today are duly heavy on simplistic logic and light on magic. A spreadsheet leaves no room for miracles. But what if this approach is wrong? What if in our quest to recreate the certainty of the laws of physics, we are now too eager to impose the same consistency and certainty in fields where it has no place? So you write that when you demand logic, you pay a hidden price. Explain. Well, very simply, uh, this is actually of much wider importance as well, which is the assumption of economics is that essentially value can only be created in a factory and that value is essentially a product of production and consumption. Now, what it's done, I think, in trying to model itself in physics is it's trying to create the kind of science where nothing can be created or destroyed out of nothing. So its own equivalent of Newton's second law of thermodynamics uh, we know where energy cannot be created or destroyed. Uh, the economic equivalent of that is, I suppose, Milton Friedman's, there's no such thing as a free lunch. And by modeling yourself on physics, you make the problem, which is that the only way to improve something is to improve it objectively and to, to, to change some quality uh, of the product itself or the service itself. And my argument is that that's absolutely true in physics, but it's completely not true in psychology. That in psychology, you can make something bad quite good by telling a different story about it, or by creating a different expectation for the thing, or by changing the context or the frame of reference or the comparison set against which you compare it. And you see that, by the way, in um, a lot of advertisements. You know, if you take one of the greatest ad campaigns of all time, uh, you know, uh, Avis is uh, number two in rental cars. Now, that sentence, without the accompanying, so we try harder, that's an ad for Hertz. But if you flip the comparison so that size is not now about the number of outlets, the likelihood that you'll get the car of your choice, economies of scale, the standard narrative, you make it about the attitude of the staff, you can turn a weakness into a strength by getting someone to pay attention to a different aspect of the same thing. 
The story I tell in the book is about the business where I'd always hated buses that take you from planes to the airport because I'd always seen them as the poor man's air bridge. But then a brilliant pilot got me to think of it differently. And what he said was, he said, I've got some bad news and some good news. He said, after landing. And I said, you don't want to hear that at 30,000 feet. Okay. He said, I've got some bad news and good news. And he said, the bad news is I won't be able to get to an air bridge because there's a plane blocking the gate. But the good news is that um, the bus will take you all the way to passport control. So you won't have far to walk with your bags. Now, it, that had never occurred to me before. It wasn't salient. It wasn't visible. Once I realized that I was actually avoiding an unnecessarily long walk by taking the bus, the bus went from being an inconvenience to being a conveyance. And I was actually quite glad there was a bus. And you can do the same trick, by the way, next time you have that bus at a large airport. Simply say quite loudly to your companion on the plane, well, the good news is the bus actually drives you pretty close to uh, baggage collection so you don't have to walk 300 yards down Kafkaesque corridors uh, just to get out of the bloody airport and you synthesized happiness and value in everybody in earshot not by changing the nature of the bus itself but by getting them to pay attention to a different aspect of it hmm. now one of the reasons i think this is very important in a wider area is that economics is predicated on the need for continuous or continual economic growth which in their model of the world means continually greater consumption of resources. And at some point you're going to reach you know, a, a level where the planet can't sustain that level of added consumption. On the other hand, there's a different way of looking at it, which is that there's a constraint on physical products, but there isn't a constraint either on human ingenuity or on meaning. And if you can get the same thing to mean more, with less, then you can grow human happiness and you can grow well-being and you can grow our, I think, our innate need for, you can satisfy our innate need for progress and invention without necessarily consuming more of anything in the physical space. And in fact, we see that, by the way, we see that in, in economies like the UK, where we're seeing dematerialization in that, you know, we get Netflix, if you like, is, you know, quite a significant business. But mostly what it trades in isn't physical goods, it's in messages and meaning. And I think we can do the same thing more widely, that um, people don't necessarily want more of anything, or even want things that are objectively better in a conventional sense. And I think where you get trapped is the SI units, okay, time, weight, distance, all those units that are considered objective in measuring anything, don't make any allowance for human perception. Now, the SI unit of time is a duration. The perception of time by human beings is hugely context and mood dependent and meaning dependent. And in any case, what you probably want to reduce with um, if you're trying to reduce time for a human actor isn't actually duration it's probably irritation so a very simple example of this which is an extraordinary piece of alchemy which i learned from my cousin who was a consultant in accident and emergency uh, in hospitals in the north of england if you make if people come into accident and emergency with, with a non-life-threatening condition by the way you know something that's annoying but not life-threatening now the government measures wait times, how long they have to wait before they're seen by the necessary specialist. One of the points he made is that, in fact, if you treat someone 
fairly quickly, someone comes in, they go into the waiting room, they're seen by a triage nurse, and the triage nurse says, you'll need to see the consultant dermatologist or whoever it may be, and there will be a bit of a wait. If you then show them through to a different waiting room where they wait for two hours, they're remarkably unconcerned by the wait. If you send them back to the original waiting room, they become very, very angry very quickly. And so the nature of frustration or irritation certainly doesn't have a linear relationship with, indeed has you know, very little relationship to the duration of a wait. But targets, what we tend to pursue in improving anything, tend to be objective measures, you know, weight, distance, and all the SI-derived units. Psychological units are very, very different indeed, because there's the objective thing, our perception of the thing, the context in which we perceive the thing, the meaning we therefore ascribe to the thing, and the emotion generated by the meaning, and then the behavior generated by the emotion. That's roughly the relationship between a thing and a human action. It, it's very pop psychology, that. But what I'm saying is that all of those things play a part in between objective reality and behavior. And yet government and business tends to measure the things that are objective because there are very, very good units for those. Now, if you think about it, there's an SI unit for time and there's an SI unit for speed, but there isn't an SI unit for boredom, frustration, irritation, whatever it may be. And perhaps when I suggested all those years ago in TED, rather than spending money making trains faster, we should spend money making the time either more enjoyable or more useful by putting Wi-Fi on the trains, tables on the trains. Um, you could argue, if you want to get really psychological about it, that a sleeper train is an incredibly fast form of transportation. If you take the Edinburgh sleeper from Edinburgh to London, okay, it gets you from Edinburgh to London, which is a distance of about 500 and something miles, in about 35 minutes. Well, it doesn't. It's 8,035, but you're asleep for eight of them. So in some ways, the Edinburgh sleeper is faster than the Concorde, if you make waking hours the unit of time. One of the things I'm saying is that the human brain is immensely complex, non-linear, with all sorts of feedback loops, evolutionary mechanisms, and so forth. And the way in which we react to objective improvements is anything but a neat mapping from one to the other. So to give you an example, the improvement you generate by making a train faster entirely depends on whether you're reducing a journey from four hours to two, which is a very big difference in human terms because it means you can do the trip there and back in a day without needing to stay overnight in a hotel. You know, a four-hour trip, I don't think I've ever been to Edinburgh for a business meeting there and back in the same day by train. That would be kind of crazy, okay? Because you spend 10 hours on a train and two hours in a meeting. On the other hand, if you reduce a journey from two hours to one, I would argue, this is my case against High Speed 2, a proposed rail line to Manchester uh, in the UK, my case against that is, look, if I go to Manchester, it's a day out of the office. It's a day out of the office if the train journey takes two hours, and it's a day out of the office if it takes one, realistically. And so, as a result, you don't get anything like the same change in behavior from two hours to one as you would do from four hours to two. Equally, you might argue, as many business people would, that the time on the train now, if you have a reasonable Wi-Fi connection, it's about the most productive two hours of your week. So why would you necessarily want to reduce that time? Right. 
We're going to take a break here so I can tell you more about David Meerman Scott's new marketing mastery course and a very generous discount he's offering to Marketing Book Podcast listeners. Two books have had the biggest impact on my marketing career, and one of them is David Merriman Scott's The New Rules of Marketing and PR. Naturally, I'm a big fan of David Merriman Scott, which is why he was the very first guest on the Marketing Book Podcast and why he's returned several times. His new marketing mastery course, Three Years in the Making, in collaboration with Tony Robbins, teaches you step-by-step the most important aspects of modern marketing so that your marketing can drive dramatically better sales results. Many of the mistakes I see companies make in their marketing can be avoided by following what's recommended in this comprehensive course. The New Marketing Mastery course has over 50 videos, over 25 infographics and worksheets, and a 50-page workbook that gives you step-by-step instructions on topics like buyer personas, content, social media, and building a business growth plan. Now, you can continue spending money having a good time going to marketing conferences or hiring consultants, but for a lot less, you can get this course, implement what he teaches, and start seeing measurable results. And your whole team can use it, which is why it's a great way to train your marketing team, particularly new hires. The knowledge you can get from the latest edition of the New Rules of Marketing and PR is why I continue to recommend it as the one book to help people get a better handle on what they need to understand about modern marketing and the modern buyer. Now, with this course, you can learn how to turn that knowledge into action. The secret to getting ahead is getting started. For you to get started, go to newmarketingmastery.com and enter the promo code MARKETINGBOOK to get $500 off the price. Go to newmarketingmastery.com and make sure to enter promo code MARKETINGBOOK to get $500 off. I also have a video about the course and a link to it in this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And now back to the show. So Rory, you explained that an important metaphor for this book is that if we allow the world to be run by logical people, we will only discover logical things. But in real life, most things aren't logical. They are what you call in the book psycho- logical with a hyphen between psycho and logical. Emphatically, yeah. Explain that concept. Well, I think what I've started to talk about more recently since the book was published is decisions that are taken that don't seem like decisions. And one of the problems when something's very logical is nobody thinks about it very much because the very fact that it makes sense means that they can therefore take it as axiomatic and treat it as a given. And I'd argue that's a very, very dangerous thing to do because If you think about it, the burden of proof and the amount of thought attached to a logical conclusion is very low. And that's why there's a preference for the more logical? And also the fact that in business you don't get blamed. Provided you're logical, you'll never get fired, even if your decision is quite bad. Okay, It's much, much easier to get fired for being irrational than it is to get fired for being unimaginative. Yes, seemingly uh, irrational. So, so, so an example would be, you know, if you have a product that isn't selling and people drop the price, okay, th- weirdly, that might get approved in sort of 20 minutes of board discussion or less, because it's consistent with a kind of logical theory of the relationship between price and demand, okay? I'd argue that actually, there may be 10 imaginative solutions to the same problem that aren't being discussed, because at some level, 
they rely on psychologic rather than logic. A very simple example. I'll give you a very simple one, okay? I had a, a, a bit of a, a, a tease with Spotify. In the fairly early days of Spotify, I suggested that although it seemed like the absolutely perfect product that you paid $10, $15 a month in exchange for unlimited access to music, and, you know, once they'd realized it was economically possible to offer unlimited access to music for whatever the price it was, uh, what could be possibly better than that? What could be better than unlimited? And I explained that in psychologic, you can't be absolutely sure. So in psychologic, I said, arguably, nobody knows what unlimited music is worth. Whereas if you artificially limited it and said you could only download the equivalent of 200 CDs a month. People would make a comparison, which they probably weren't making, which is, hold on, if I bought 200 CDs a month, it would cost me $2,000 a month. You know, that's kind of what Elton John spends on CDs. You know, that's going into a music shop and just buying with complete abandon. And I said, if you make it unlimited, that absolute killer comparison might not get made in the human brain. Because unlimited music's a bit kind of, it's a bit hard to quantify. You know, it's like saying, as I joke, you know, would you like to buy my unicorn? Nobody really knows what it's worth. And so that's one of the very interesting things, which is that value, what we're prepared to pay and whether we think something's worth good money or not, is not simply a product of what it is and how much it costs. A very a very simple example of this, Nespresso I talk about in the book. Uh, if you think about it, the reason it seems reasonable is because we don't know what a single cup of Maxwell House or Folgers coffee costs. We don't know what a single cup of uh, filter coffee costs. And so our mental frame when we think that Nespresso is really quite reasonable is Starbucks. Now, if you made your mental frame, if you knew that a, cost, a cup of Folgers cost two pence, or three pence, and a cup of Nespresso cost, let's say, 35, it would seem much more expensive than it does. Uh, I don't know if you're interested in this. If you're very keen on very, very upmarket expensive tea, okay, I tend to feel pretty guilty buying the stuff because there's a tin of the stuff and it's kind of nine pounds. And, you know, you could buy an equivalent amount of cheap tea for sort of, you know, one pound 60. Hmm. And it seems a hell of a lot of money to be spending. But if I reframe it to you and say that if you make that very expensive tea with tap water, the resulting drink per pint is cheaper than bottled water. No, it doesn't seem quite so bad, does it? Mm, yes, that's uh, the reframing that you talk about. Uh, with my father, he wouldn't get pay television. Bear in mind, in Britain, we didn't have pay television until relatively late. And £17 a month on top of his license fee seemed like quite a lot of money. And I did the oldest kind of Don Draper alchemy trick, which was just to say, well, actually, it isn't really 17 pounds a month. It's 60 pence a day. And he said, well, they're the same thing. What, what difference does that make? I said, well, it's 60p a day. But bear in mind, you spend two pounds a day on newspapers. Oh, I said, well, if you spend two pounds a day on newspapers, it's not that irrational to spend a, a further 60 pence getting another 200 channels, particularly he likes factual television more than drama. I said, you know, getting access to sort of 50 news channels, documentary channels, you know, history channel, wildlife channel, PBS channel and so forth. Getting all that for 60p a day when you contrast it to the price of a newspaper isn't really. And he went, oh, I see what you mean. And he's now actually quite an advocate for, you know, he bullies all his friends to get pay television for exactly that reason. And so the idea that 
promulgated by mainstream economists, not Austrian economists. The Austrian school believed that value was subjective and that the, the, you could create value by telling stories about something just as much and just as validly as you could by changing the thing itself. That value could be created in the mind, not just in the factory. And so Austrian school economists fully understand advertising and marketing and the necessity for it. The problem you have with mainstream economics is that if you believe, as the models posit, that everybody has perfect information and perfect trust and knows in advance to the penny the value of the utility they'll derive from buying something, if you believe that, you've just created a, an efficiency-driven model of the world in which marketing is at best a necessary evil. It's a cost to be minimized, but it's a cost. It's not a source of value. And I think that's an incredibly dangerous assumption because it will force you always, it will give you only two levers of change, which is to change the product itself, usually making it more elaborate, more complicated and so forth, or to reduce the price. The most environmentally friendly way, the easiest way and the best value way to create value, as any Austrian school economist would know, is to describe it to someone in language which is salient persuasive and differentiating uh, in other words the most the, the the single most effective way to create value is to take someone who doesn't really understand why the product's a good thing and disabuse them of their misconceptions or tell stories that explain the value in a plausible dramatic and memorable way yes so one of the most powerful things I see for companies as well as marketers is are, are those companies that have the deepest understanding of their of their customers. And in your book, you talk about how we have a culture that prizes measuring things over understanding people. And you also have a quote from David Ogilvy where he talks about the trouble with market research is that people don't think what they feel, they don't say what they think. And they don't do what they say. No, this is absolutely true. If you could explain that and, and then how to – it's not a matter of going to customers and saying, what do you want? In a funny way, it's an argument for the necessity of competitive ca capitalism because you could – if people knew exactly what they wanted and could describe it to you with accuracy in advance. In other words, they had full introspective access to their motivations and their needs and their wants. And they could accurately communicate such things. In such a world where market research worked perfectly, you could argue that a controlled economy rather than a competitive economy might deliver more goods more efficiently. Unfortunately, to a great extent, we only really know what we want when we've been presented with it and experienced it. And we may never even know why it is we like the things we do, by the way. And we may, furthermore, we may misrepresent why we do the things we do. And the example there in the book is, of course, toothpaste, which is if you ask people why they clean their teeth, if you ask people what's important in a toothpaste, the answers among adults at any rate will dissolve to talk about dental health, prevention of cavities, uh, you know, enamel, uh, gum health, all those kind of rational medical things. If you look at why people clean their teeth in reality and when people clean their teeth, First thing in the morning, pretty reliably, before they go on a date, possibly before sex, okay? It's much more about fear of bad breath than it is about uh, dental health. And I think what's important about that is that our real motivation 
doesn't chime with our official stated motivation. Revealed preference doesn't chime with stated preference, to use economic jargon. And I think what's going on there is, I mean, a very significant thing, by the way, is if it really weren't about fresh breath, why is it that 98% of the world's toothpaste is mint flavoured? Right. Okay. You know, what's going on there? Because that's evidence of the fact that what we're doing really is we clean our teeth because we're frightened of going to work with our breath smelling, you know, like some, you know, reptile, you know, Komodo dragon-like sort of hideous breath and, and for reasons of vanity. And the official reason is one we adopt for, and which, which we believe ourselves, by the way. You know, that, that we seriously believe our official reasons for doing things, even when behavior uh, tells a very different story. And so it's only, I, I suppose it's only through competitive capitalism that you can find out what the amygdala wants as distinct from the prefrontal cortex. Mm -hmm. In terms of observing their behavior? If you believe that human happiness and satisfaction to some extent lies in parts of the brain which are opaque to introspection, if, in other words, we can't really know what our true motivations are, and that there are various theories, Robert Trivers being one of the great proponents here, of it's not to our evolutionary advantage to know our true motivations because it's necessary to disguise them uh, from others. Why? Uh, because if you had too much, uh, uh, if you had too much capacity for self-examination, reliable self-examination, you'd give the game away. Uh, and so, for example, okay, let's say you want to go to Oxford University. I think I give this example in the book, okay? Now, deep down, the reason you want to go to Oxford University might be to pull girls to get a job at J.P. Morgan, okay? I mean, you know, goodness knows what else, okay? But you need to get a degree in history of art in order to get that prized Oxford degree. Okay, it is no good. You have to be able convincingly to present yourself as someone desperately interested in the uh, history of art in order to disguise the fact that your true motivation, which is, let's say, either economic or sexual, mm -hmm. is not revealed to the examiners. And so in many cases, too much self-knowledge would cause us to develop clues to our real motivation. And so the ability to disguise deep, you know, uh, our deeper motivations behind a veil of official motivations is possibly necessary to our survival as a social species. Hmm. So you talk about how marketing often doesn't get credit in, in business, uh, particularly logic-driven businesses. And I think, by the way, we often look in the wrong places because people who – businesses that spend a lot of money on bought media – tend to have spent a lot of money on advertising, and as a result, they have very large marketing departments. And because what the marketing departments do is, is expensive, those marketing departments are reasonably influential. It's worth remembering that there are very large areas of decision-making in business and in policy-making and in government which don't have a marketing function at all. And in some ways, when I founded the behavioral science practice, it's those areas that interest me most. Because making decisions on the basis of assumed logic, with no reference at all to anyone who takes the human psychological perspective, who's looking at the, the matter through the eyes of a prospective customer, is an extraordinarily dangerous thing. 
because you're effectively in a world where the, where, where the only discussion is of logic and psychological doesn't even get a look in. So it wouldn't be easy to make a decision in Unilever without it coming up against someone who had a marketing background or some facility for thinking like a marketer. Mm-hmm. But within a tech business or worse, within a government or within a, the civil service, for example, or within you know, government service in general, or in any business with a very strong engineering culture, financial culture, tech culture, you would have a whole bunch of people assuming that whatever was logically best and whatever most impressed their friends through quality of argument and, and reasoning was also the best course of action. And there would be no one ever present to dissent with, from that. But quite often, simply because something makes sense doesn't mean it's right. Now, in physics, if something kind of makes sense, or in mathematics, if something makes sense, it's mostly right. Not always. Well, uh, there are exceptions to that. But basically, in, in physics, you're dealing with a single right answer. Okay. In psychologic, you're emphatically not. There are multiple right answers to the same question. Sometimes, more baffling still, the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. That means, by the way, that the solution space in which we're operating, as marketers dealing with psychologic, the solution space in which we're operating is qualitatively totally different. In other words, it's it's highly complex and utterly different in terms of the necessary mathematics and reasoning skills required versus something like, for example, engineering, where there may be a single optimal answer to a problem. So just to give an example, if you build a bridge, you can define a bridge, a good bridge, in terms which make, make no reference to human perception. Okay, right. Does it take this amount of weight with this frequency over this length of time under the following climatic and seismic conditions? If yes, it's a good bridge. And you can model that. The second you paint the lines on the bridge, let's say you want cars to slow down before they enter the bridge, now you're in the field of human perception. And the number of answers to how do you get people to slow down on entering the bridge are multiple. They might work in combination. They might work singly. Okay. You might use psychological tricks because the logical person, the lawyer, would say maximum speed, 30 miles an hour. If I'm being psychologically cunning, I'd say target speed on bridge, 20 to 30 MPH. Now, why, why that difference? Well, what they found in New Mexico, apparently, is if you have a speed limit of 70 miles an hour, people drive at 75. If on a road you say target speed 60 to 70, people drive at about 67. So simply by changing a frame of reference or the way you present information can completely change behavior, but it doesn't work in a, in a, in a straightforward way. You know, you could paint lines as you approach the bridge. You could have lines that increasingly become close together, as I think uh, Richard Thaler mentions in, in, in the book Nudge. That's a case where you design the environment to encourage uh, either consciously or unconsciously, in that case, I think unconsciously, although we now know about the trick, uh, the desired behavior. You could put rumble strips on the bridge. That, you, know, you could put sleeping policemen on the bridge. That's more of a shove than a nudge, to be honest. But there are lots and lots of ways you could get people to slow down. And, uh, by the way, if you gave me another two hours, I could probably think of 20 more. Right. Well, you know, what it brings to mind is uh, where I am, I see signs and it'll say 25 miles per hour, and then it has a digital sign above telling how fast I'm going. That's very, very effective, by the way. I think, weirdly... I'm fairly sure that they're more effective than speed cameras in changing behavior. 
which when you think about it is really strange because the speed camera comes with uh, financial punishment, whereas the flashing light and the smiley face and the, uh, and the record of your own speed doesn't actually threaten you with anything. It merely uses persuasion. But here's a really interesting point, okay? Because of this total dislike of psychologic, because it's so fuzzy and messy, you can still test it, let's not forget, okay? Government typically looks to legislation first, economic incentive second, and persuasion third. Now, even if you're not a fanatical libertarian, it should be the other way around. Like with this speeding sign that makes me slow down. Yeah, and it works for me every time, by the way. And it's complicated as to why it works so well, whereas a speed camera doesn't. So I I wanted to uh, talk about this one of many ideas in the book, and that is about people's true motivations as it relates to making a good decision versus avoiding failure. And uh, let me quote, it says, "...the the strongest marketing approach in a business-to-business context comes not from explaining that your product is good, but from sowing fear, uncertainty, and doubt." around the available alternatives, the desire to make good decisions and the urge not to get fired or blamed may at first seem to be similar motivations, but they are in fact never quite the same thing and may sometimes be diametrically different. It seems like a lot of marketers and companies are, are, not, are underestimating people's fear uh, rather than uh, them trying to make the right decision. It's like toothpaste. When we're asked, why did you do X? Why did you buy this particular car? Or the most extreme case, why did you marry your wife or husband? Okay. We talk as though we're maximizers. Now, nobody would ever say, the most unromantic sentence in the world, you know, why did you marry your wife? Because I thought it highly unlikely she was a psychopath or a lunatic. Okay. But in evolutionary terms, I suspect... There are certain behaviors which are, you know, any indication of potential psychopathy or, you know, uh, is deeply, deeply alarming. And so the absence of negatives sounds like a very unambitious way to advertise. uh, The one exception being the famous phrase, no one ever got fired for buying IBM. Mm -hmm. But in fact, as far as our decision making apparatus goes beneath the level of consciousness, the fear of disaster or blame in the in a in a institutional setting, the fear of blame is probably a stronger motivator than the aim for perfection. And by the way, the dynamics of blame and where it goes are complicated because if you make a, a very boring decision that's logical and sensible, you're very unlikely to get much blame for it because it's what most other people would have done. Okay. If you make an eccentric decision and it goes wrong, that's where the blame will attach almost immediately. Even if, actually, the eccentricity of your decision, let's say to produce a slightly unusual advertising campaign, had nothing to do with the reasons for failure. Actually, I have a case in point uh, which illustrates that, which is Strand Cigarettes, which was launched with a very cool advertising campaign uh, back in the 1950s. My father remembers at the time thinking it was great advertising, and with a song that made it, I think, to number three on the charts or something, something of that order. And... The official story was it was a disastrously unsuccessful launch. Actually, it wasn't. Uh, The reason it failed was that the cigarette was terrible. I mean, it was an appallingly low-quality cigarette. Okay? And if you look at the data, lots of people bought the cigarette, found it was disgusting, and never bought it again. The official story that always went out was that the advertising campaign made the smoker look lonely, and therefore people didn't want to be associated with it. It made him look actually very cool. 
uh, if you like. It, you know, he was sort of a moody Sinatra-like character in black and white because it was the 50s, sort of smoking in the rain and a bridge with a Trilby hat on. He was actually a pretty damn cool guy, to be honest. And my father remembers thinking what a great ad campaign it was at the time. But the failure was was heaped on the advertising campaign because it was distinctive and different. And the people who produced the appalling cigarette, which was the real reason for the failure, escaped any blame. And so the other thing that happens is if you go with a mainstream option, again, you won't get blamed very much. If you go with an eccentric option, however good it is probabilistically, okay, you've made more of a decision by doing something eccentric. And the more of a decision you make, the more blameworthy it becomes. And so ultimate success is to hold a big meeting where blame is shared between 20 people by making decisions collectively, for instance. That's why we mostly hold meetings in the office. It's because if 10 people agree to something, then you have collective blame shared between the 10 people in the room. And that blame doesn't probably add up to enough to fire any one of them. If you make a decision alone, then in the event that things go wrong, regardless of whether your decision contributed to the failure or not, your head's right above the parapet at this point. (laughs) And so, you know, I always argue that's probably why there are four big accounting firms, okay? If you go with one of the big four or the big five accounting firms, you know, if you appoint Pricewaterhouse, if anything goes wrong, everybody blames Pricewaterhouse. But if you've appointed an eccentric boutique accounting firm, Okay, which might be cheaper or quicker or whatever on average, but something goes wrong. Now everybody blames you for not appointing Price Waterhouse. So business decision making, I think, is more riddled with biases than consumer decision making is. Because once you understand that people are trying to avoid blame, a whole load of extra biases, again, probably only felt unconsciously rather than consciously reasoned or thought through, pervades business decision-making to an extraordinary degree. The tendency to go with the obvious, to go with the logical, the logical, or to make recommendations that are not necessarily good, but which are easy to defend. Those things are rife within business decision-making. And you might argue in government, it gets even worse because the culture of blame avoidance in the public sector, which doesn't have much upside reward for success, but has some fairly extreme downside reward for failure. The biases that creates in terms of what Gerd Gigerenza calls defensive decision-making can be far more considerable than the biases which economists often wrongly point out in consumer decision-making. Yes, and you you also talk about how all really successful businesses, as much as they pretend to be popular for rational reasons, like we've discussed, most of their success is from having stumbled upon some sort of psychological magic trick or or alchemy, as you describe Uh, The Uber map, the fact that Google has a very, very simple interface, uh, which, by the way, was not done intentionally, even though it's very clever. We tend to assume that something that only does one thing is good at that thing. Okay. Now, at the time Google came along, the big fashion was to create a portal, something which had sports scores, weather information, news, you know, and which also had search functionality. All Google had was search functionality on a single page with two buttons, including one that says, by the way, I'm feeling lucky, which is still there, even though nobody clicks on it, because apparently removing it makes things 2% worse for Google in some weird way. Uh Okay. Now, interestingly, the reason the page was so simple was not because they knew about the um, fit bias. In other words, if it only does one thing, jack of all trades bias, it's sometimes called, okay? Uh, We tend to think that something that's trying to do lots of things isn't as good as something that just does one. Right. 
Okay. It's why if you go to a restaurant, it says like tapas and Thai food. You tend to get it's probably not really good at either of them, right. to be honest. Right, right. Okay. And so I don't think that was the re- wasn't the reason why Google did that. It was simply that Larry Page wasn't very good at coding HTML. Mm-hmm. And so the simple Google page was the best they could get. Right. And looking back, they rationalize it as being brilliant. And looking back, well, you could you, you could rationalize it as being brilliant then. But the extraordinary thing is I think an awful lot, to be honest, of what is considered to be brilliant behavioral science is the product sometimes of lucky accident. The Uber map is ingenious because the whole experience of waiting for a cab is transformed where, when you can see where the cab is. Like the waiting rooms at the hospital you were talking about. You got it exactly. So you, we don't like waiting. I'm not suggesting that faster isn't generally better than, than longer. But what we really hate is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. We want more uh, control. Emphatically so. And our feeling of loss of control is much more distressing to us emotionally than our feeling of having to wait. And that's true with things like bus and train information times or airport departure boards. You know, it's much, much better to see flights delayed 120 minutes than flight delayed and then just a blank space. Right. So, Rory, if readers took only one thing away from the book, what would you hope it would be? If success, your definition of success, involves some form of human perception or behavior, logic alone is not a safe toolkit. Mm, Well said. So, what is one thing a listener could do today to put into action any idea from, from your book? Well, interestingly, I only discovered this after writing the book, but someone asked me, um, what's your methodology? And I go, in arriving at any thing, okay, any, any course of action, okay, whatever it may be, you will find some assumptions have been made patently, okay? I can't think of any human behavior which is entirely data-driven and, you know, and, and um, based in, you know, on where every single step of the way someone's thought through every available alternative. It's simply not possible. Some of those assumptions they are, are made without people even being aware they're making an assumption. Okay, mm-hmm. so if you have a high, you know, if you have a bunch of finance directors, and they say we aren't selling very much of X, therefore we need to drop the price, they don't even think of that as a decision. They just think of that as a natural course of action. Mm-hmm. If you can find out what either the assumption that you're wrong about. And you look through all the assumptions you have to make, and then you can find one that's wrong, or you can change it. And it might be wrong because it's simply not true, because psychologic isn't the same as logic. It might be wrong because human tastes and preferences have changed, because they do, because we're novelty-seeking as a species, okay? And we get bored with something that's good at one thing, and we get excited by something that's good at something new. Mm-hmm. Okay. It might be wrong because technology has rendered your initial assumptions about what good is unsafe. So the fact that, you know, a three hour train journey is boring and intolerable was a reasonably safe assumption, I think. Put it this way Eurostar now has a sort of four hour service to, from London to Amsterdam. I'm not sure that many people would have taken that journey in preference to flying, often at a higher cost, by the way, okay, if it weren't for the fact that train journeys have become more and more enjoyable and productive and airports have become a bigger and bigger pain in the ass. 
<laughs> so over time, you know, if you are flying from a small airport to, and you could either fly or take the train, and the airport was comparatively small and efficient and security procedures were less than burdensome, nearly everybody would fly. The rules have changed, the assumptions have changed, because just as the, the blue ribbon became a very unhelpful incentive for transatlantic liners once the jet engine was invented, or the, rather the, the Boeing uh, jet civil aviation airliner was invented, okay? And suddenly, all the things you assume were true are no longer true. Human tastes change, fashions change, aspirations change. You know, cars aren't that big a deal for urban teenagers as a status signal at all. Not like they once were, yeah. No, so a combination of Uber, car sharing, and public transit in large metropolitan cities is arguably becoming much more cool than it used to be, and car ownership less so. And those things just change over time. So, But always, somewhere, in any problem, there's an assumption that nobody's noticed, or that nobody's questioned, or that nobody's questioned adequately because it looks logical, and therefore, why would you do something less logical? If you do something less logical, it's got to be worse. I don't agree. And so once you find what that assumption is, or you find an assumption that's made by all your competitors that characterizes the category, which is no longer safe or true, then you can start to innovate. And you might innovate in how you communicate. How, you might innovate in terms of the product itself. You might indicate in terms of how you promote the product, frame the product, uh, how you contextualize the product. Okay, But nonetheless, you're now innovating in an Austrian sense. Marketing is just as much innovation as product innovation is if you're an Austrian school economist, technically. Now, interestingly, interestingly, having described that as my methodology, someone came to me and said, that's more or less Disney. That's how Disney did it which is pretty much as good a recommendation for a methodology as you could possibly get. And what he'd do, apparently, is he wanted to get missed in cinemas for Fantasia. And he couldn't get missed in cinemas, and he thought, well, I'm assuming that Disney has to be two-dimensional. It really annoys me that I can't produce mist in a cinema, and it really annoys me that in many cases I produce films in cinemas over which I have no control. So what would Disney be like if it weren't constrained to two dimensions? Well, okay, You'd have a space, but you couldn't have the pirates right next to Mickey Mouse, right next to a princess, because that would be confusing. So you'd have to have different areas. And from that, Disneyland was born. So he just took the what if this weren't true, and then through induction, took it through to its logical conclusion, and essentially arrived at the amusement park. Yes, it seems like we lose that uh, childlike uh, way of asking why at some point, and if you can continue to ask those kinds of questions, you can start to challenge some of the logic. Uh, some, of the, some of them are invisible. So the example I always give is Sherlock Holmes and the dog that didn't bark, the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. And if I can remember, I'm a huge Sherlock Holmes nut. Uh, you know, I'd like he talks to Lestrade, I think it is. I'd like to draw your attention to the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime. But the dog did nothing in the nighttime. That was the curious incident, replied Sherlock Holmes. And to notice something which is not there is a peculiar form of creative genius. Okay? Mm -hmm. To notice something that is, is, you know, that isn't always that easy. Okay, noticing assumptions when you don't even think they're assumptions because you just think that they're logical and any sane person would have done the same thing. That requires a certain amount of effort and, and a certain amount of skill. Yes. Noticing something that isn't there at all, that's really, really interesting. And 
Uh, I remember doing it once, actually. We were doing research into buying home computers for Compaq sometime back in, I guess, the late 90s when the internet had only just about come along and where richer homes were starting to buy for what was then, you know, a thousand pounds for a remarkably crude machine, but people were starting to buy computers for home. And I noticed in all the discussion, of course, nobody ever mentioned the cost of software, which I think meant that they were basically planning to nick it from work. Nobody was talking about the cost of the operating system, but they weren't talking about the cost of Word, you know, or what, what might have been then uh, Lotus 1, 2, 3, or right. Word Perfect, or whatever it might have been. Uh-huh. And of course, I suddenly realized that actually what was happening here, though nobody was saying it, was that they weren't planning to pay for it at all. They were all talking about, oh, it's great to have a computer for word processing. Bear in mind, this is 23 years ago. But nobody was saying, of course, the software is expensive. And I think the real reason was they were planning to nick it from somewhere. Now, in the case of noticing something that isn't, uh, there's a lovely story about Disney where he's reviewing, I think, one of the parks, and there's a pirate area in the park. And it's supposed to be something like Porto Prance or whatever it is. Uh, you know, it might, might be somewhere in Jamaica. I can't remember. And, you know, it's kind of hot, humid. And Disney goes, this is great, guys. You've done a really great job, but there's something missing. And they go, well, we, we thought of everything. I mean, there's nothing missing. And he goes, no, 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 frogs. You need frogs. And the guy said, the great thing about Disney is you could just say, get me some frogs and some replica frogs, but also more important still, the sound recordings of frogs could be brought to you within about two minutes because that's how they operate. You know, hmm. you know, in any other organization that would take weeks you know, going through your frog procurement department or whatever. And um, and it helped being Walt, I guess. But that's the kind of thing where spotting something that's absent, okay, spotting, why is it that nobody's ever done this? That's possibly the most valuable form of innovation, and it's the hardest to do. Yes, and also challenging what seem to be ironclad uh, assumptions. So Exactly, yeah, yeah. So, Rory, what books have inspired your work and career both knowing and reading Nassim Taleb is very interesting because it it um, we're much much less safe in our statistical assumptions than we think that's the first one and statistics is an area that terrifies me because the growth in the, in the amount of data is not being matched by exponential growth in the number of competent statisticians who I would say are still a pretty rare group of people I certainly wouldn't count myself among them other books were a huge influence Cialdini Thaler, Kahneman, obviously, mm-hmm. and patently also um, Dan Ariely. Uh, some English books, actually. The Brits and the Europeans don't get enough credit in the behavioral economics field. Uh, and so uh, there's a book called Irrationality by a guy called Stuart Sutherland. No relation of mine. He was a, a psychologist at the University of Sussex. The works of John Kay. Books like Obliquity, a very, very short book, by the way, and various other works by John Kay. Books also by Tim Harford, who's, again, a Brit economist and writer. And um, general inquiry, I suppose, also just general exposure to creative people who, again, have that very, very interesting thing, which is the opposite of what you mostly find within a business decision-making environment, which is a fear of the obvious. Most people have a deep-set love of the obvious because the obvious is very rarely blameworthy. If you're a creative person in an advertising agency and you do something obvious, it's very rarely praiseworthy. And so it creates a very, very interesting culture where you are almost naturally and willfully perverse in your thinking. 
Are there any recent or upcoming books that you recommend or are looking forward to reading? Uh, quite a few. There's a new edition coming out. Let me just uh, think of what, what the newest ones are that I've just been buying. So Nair Eyal's book's coming out. I think there is a new book, if I'm right, by Cass Sunstein coming out. There are a few new ones in the um, – let, let me actually go and have a quick look on the uh, uh, on the website because I've noticed about two or three, sure. uh, which I'm very much looking forward to. And um, I, I'm interested in knowing the latest about George Lowenstein's work where he's researching boredom. Uh, there's a new book by Rachel Botsman out on trust, which I don't yet know about. That's a very interesting area because, of course, trust is an ingredient without which nothing else in economics works. <laughs> yes. And yet the whole of economics, by assuming it away, essentially spends almost no time, or until recently, spent very little time investigating it. Yes, and I would think that uh, the unimaginative economists would not like your book because you definitely do not hold back on uh, some of the um, limitations of that dismal science uh, it is pretty dismal, I think, too. I mean, I, I really do think it need it needs a much worse um, uh, ride than it gets, even even already. Right. Well, and you um, also didn't spare mathematicians. Well, I should say charlatans uh, posing as as uh, first rate mathematicians. No, I mean it's very easy to do because second rate mathematicians can find it very easy to bamboozle the first rate. Uh, the Choice Factory is a good book by Richard Shotton. Oh, I'm just I've plugging read that. a few Brits here. Mm -hmm. uh, he'd be a great interviewee for your show, by the way. What else would I recommend? There's a new book coming out. I'm just trying to remember it by Richard Chataway, and I'm trying to find the title on Amazon. Uh, he was an old business partner of mine who's now writing a book about behavioral science in. Um, uh, particularly in business and government, uh, so applied behavioral science, if you like. And I think it's called The Behavior Business, How to Apply Behavioral Science for Business Success. And you can pre-order it for delivery, at least in the UK, in on February the 18th, 2020. Oh, good. But there are plenty of other ones. I've, I, I'm conscious of the fact that I'm uh, overlooking some very good books. Oh, uh, if you're interested in advertising particularly, there's a wonderful book, and let me just get this right. I'll find, I, I want to get the title right, so I'll use Amazon for that purpose. Ryan Wallman has a book coming out, a very interesting uh, former doctor who then went into advertising. It's a very snarky look at the advertising and marketing industries. Oh, sounds delicious. It's got the most fantastic title, Delusions of Brandier. Ah, I love it. So I, I told you it was a great title, but Delusions of Brandier by um, Ryan Wallman looks extraordinarily interesting it's also in a very eccentric and very very interesting format oh good we'll have to definitely have to check that one out so at marketingbookpodcast.com we're going to include links to all the books that have been mentioned uh, to make it easier for listeners and we're going to include you know your your sites your your connect links to your social media including your linkedin profile and twitter so that Listeners can reach out to you and thank you for being a guest uh, on the show. And for you, dear listener, if you're listening on your smartphone and you've subscribed to the Marketing Book Podcast on your favorite podcast app, all these links can be found by going to this episode and clicking on the show notes link. Let me just read one final quote from the book. A few years ago, I met Daniel Kahneman for the first time. He was characteristically pessimistic about the prospects of behavioral science to change human decision-making, believing that our biases are just too deeply embedded. However, he was hopeful that people, even if they couldn't see the biases in themselves, 
might use behavioral science to better understand the behavior of others. This book has been written in that same spirit. I'm not asking people to completely overhaul all decision-making, to ignore data, or to reject facts. But whether in the bar or the boardroom, I would like just 20% of conversational time to be reserved for the consideration of alternative explanations, acknowledging the possibility that the real why differs from the official why, and that our evolved rationality is very different from the economic idea of rationality. The name of the book is Alchemy, the Dark Art and Curious Science of Creating Magic in Brands, Business, and Life. The author is Rory Sutherland. Rory, thank you very much for joining us on the Marketing Book Podcast. Douglas, it's been a huge pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. And thank you for being such a great interviewer. And that closes the book on episode 263 of the Marketing Book Podcast. For more, check out this episode's show notes at marketingbookpodcast.com. And if I can recommend a specific marketing or sales book or other helpful resource for whatever situation you find yourself in, feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn where we can chat and I'll try to point you in the right direction. My name again is Douglas Burdett. Special thanks to our sponsor, David Meerman Scott's new marketing mastery course. Get $500 off with promo code MARKETINGBOOK when you check out at newmarketingmastery.com. And please join us next time as we welcome Bob Glazier to the Marketing Book Podcast to talk about his book, Performance Partnerships, the checkered past, changing present, and exciting future of affiliate marketing. Thanks again for listening to the Marketing Book Podcast. This episode was produced by Amanda Harrison. The only other detail is the book has a slightly different title in the UK to the US. Oh, okay. Uh, which, or rather a different type, subtitle. So, uh, so just to be clear, in the UK, it's alchemy, the surprising power of ideas that don't make sense. And in the US, on Amazon.com, more conventionally, here we go. The Dark Art and Curious Science of Creating Magic in Brands, Business, and Life. You've got it exactly.